Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. What can we expect from today's federal budget? Hamilton City Council will decide this week if they should request a judicial inquiry into the Red Hill. And also, the OSSTF fear that job losses due to Ontario's increased class sizes are going to have major impacts. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Ottawa is the place to be today. Because the federal budget is uh, going on. Now, 4 o'clock this afternoon, the finance minister uh, will stand up in the House of Commons and deliver the budget. This will be the last budget uh, before the well upcoming federal election, really, uh, be, which is going to be in October. So, uh, as per usual, governments, sitting governments, try to uh, throw in many goodies and uh, good news uh, items at us as, as possible, I guess, in this situation. They're in a budget lockup in Ottawa right now. Uh, anybody who's covering the budget is in a room, and they, they have to surrender cell phones and everything else. That's been through that myself a few times, and it's a rather interesting process. But what can we expect, and what kind of an impact it's going to have on you, me, and uh, on the local economies, and of course on the national economy? Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Degut School of Business at McMaster University, joins us to uh, dissect this and talk about this, and I guess do a little uh, uh, crystal balling here, too. How are you this morning, Marvin? I'm fine, thank you. And, and like you, Bill, we're not in a lockup, so we are free to speculate all we want. Well, uh, but as per usual, uh, there's always leaks about what might be in this. When I, I find this interesting, Marvin. I mean, for you know, people that go back as far as I do, anyway, uh, there were times where you could go to jail if you leaked any budget items at all because of the impact it might have on the markets. Now we know most of this stuff about three or four days ahead of time. <laughs> and some of that is self-leaked. In other words, what often the government yeah. does is make announcements ahead of the budget so that there really aren't any surprises. Let, let me start this way, if you can, Bill. The, 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 as you correctly said, this is the budget the Liberals are going to take into the federal election, so this should have many of their key platform planks already embedded in it. Uh, having said that to you, though, I suspect the first thing the budget's going to try to establish is, to use a term from Pierre Trudeau, the land is strong meaning that after four years of the Liberals, look at all the jobs we've created, look at the low unemployment rates. Sure, we've run up some deficits, but, you know, the economy's doing pretty well, thank you very much, and take a bow. Then the second thing they're going to do is often reannounce things they've already announced. Last fall, in what was to be billed as an economic update, usually sort of a halfway, here's where things are looking at halfway through the year, they announced some uh, tax relief for businesses. This was primarily in response to Donald Trump's new tax program and also all the tariffs that he was putting on Canadian business. <clears throat> so the Liberals announced in October that they were going to start to reduce uh, uh, tax rates for some corporations, specifically smaller businesses, and they'll reiterate that. So there'll be a lot of reiteration. In terms of something new, if you're, if you're sitting out there looking for some big gift, uh, don't, don't look to this budget, because uh, even though they're going to tell you their budget deficit this year is much less than it was projected last year, last year at this time, $18 billion was the projected deficit. I would not be surprised to see a number around $16 billion, maybe even just under $16 billion. There still is a gigantic deficit. So if you think they're going to announce you know, cutting your tax rates in half, don't expect that. But I suspect there will be little goodies, in many cases, things that don't cost them any money. Again, to give you a quick example of that, there's a, uh, a lot big rumor that today, for whatever reason, Minister Morneau is going to talk about a technology deficit, the difference between cities and the countryside. Some people in the cities have high, high, high-speed Internet. 
Bell is announcing gig speed in Toronto, and yet if I'm out in the country, I'm lucky to get meg speed internet. So they're going to announce something that over the next 10 years, they promise to bring more technology to, to Canada. Two things about the promise. Much of that's going to be done with private sector money, so it doesn't cost them anything. And the second thing is it's going to be spread out over many years. In essence, they're going to hold a, a pledge that unless you reelect us, maybe those other people won't make this a priority. I expect to hear a lot of that today. Yeah, and uh, they're not going to include Huawei in that, are they? <laughs> <laughs> well, who knows? You Actually, know, we, you and I have talked about that. This, this is the, the conundrum that the government's facing. Obviously, the, the arrest of the CEO or the CFO, rather. But Huawei is firmly entrenched already in, in, the, in the tech business here in this country. I mean, they sell a lot of phones, obviously, but they're intimately uh, connected with, uh, with the, the current network that's here right now, too. It's going to be pretty hard to just simply just tell those guys to go away. Well, what we're what we're talking about or alluding to, Bill, is in the next generation of yeah. cell phones, it's called the 5G network, yeah. fifth generation network. And Huawei, in many countries around the world, is an equal player to other established technology people, whoever you want to pick on, Samsung, Apple, whoever it is, they're, they're there, and they're doing it in other countries around the world. Australia took the unusual move of announcing that Huawei would not be part of their 5G rollout. The United States is hinting that they're going to do the same thing, and they're putting pressure on Canada. On the other hand, for us, you know, the more people who are playing in this space, the more we're either going to get good prices or other different approaches to the technology. It is a dilemma for them. They won't go into that today. They're simply going to say, you know, elect us, and we're going to keep pushing technology down the road. Yeah, except that the thing that I think a lot of people in the industry and a lot of consumers would like to see them do uh, is open the market up so that we could have competition, uh, like Verizon from south of the border or something like that. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. Well, uh, yes and no. So I don't think that'll be part of today's budget. But remember, again, we have this gentleman south of the border named Trump who uh, uh, likes to confuse things by putting tariffs, what have you. You know, we want those tariffs on steel and aluminum to go away. Uh, one way to do that would be to say, let's swap those out for some quotas. We'll cap the maximum amount of Canadian steel and aluminum going into the states. But another might be to to give Donald Trump something else. You know, you take those off, maybe we'd be welcoming Verizon in to compete in the market space. You know, anything is possible with Mr. Trump and, and any government, whether it's this government or if Andrew Scheer forms a government or Jagmeet Singh, they're all going to have to deal with that man south of the border. So don't rule anything out. A uh, couple of other things, and, and again, we're into the speculative aspect of this right now. We'll get the, the hardened facts, I guess, at 4 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, and, and to their credit, you said, you know, they want to try to raise the flag up on some of the things they've done. And, and one of them was the enhanced child uh, benefit, of course, that Absolutely. has really paid off and it's, it's given us the lowest poverty rate in 10 years. So pat on the back to that. But they also say a speculation here is that uh, they want to do something for first-time home buyers. Uh, <laughs> Good luck with that. I mean, exactly what tools do they have left to do this? I mean, the obvious things you'd like to see is, well, lower interest rates. I don't know that's going to happen. That's really not within their purview anyway. That's the Bank of Canada that could do that. Uh, incentives, I don't know, rebates. So there's, there's not a whole lot left right. in the toolkit here, is there? No. So uh, they're in this this quandary, this dilemma. You might recall that over the last four years, we had some very heated housing markets in Vancouver, in Toronto, and yes, even here in Hamilton, in which prices were just soaring on homes, making already expensive homes even less affordable for first-time buyers, usually in their 20s and 30s, people in that age bracket. Uh, what we did is we said, look, we're worried that people are loading up on debt, so we put in what are called stress tests, 
let's make sure you're not taking on more debt than you can handle, that you'll suddenly have to declare bankruptcy or, or turn your house over to the market. We don't want that. We, we took steps to eliminate long, long-term amortizations, you know, 40-year amortizations, 35-year amortizations, capped it at 25. Same thing with central mortgage and housing that, uh, or excuse me, Canada, Canada mortgage and their uh, guaranteeing of mortgages. They had to be of up to 25 years. They wouldn't guarantee anything past that. And I just don't see them reversing all that. So what will they throw at first-time home buyers? I suspect a couple of things. The first might be uh, some changes, further changes to how much money you could take out of an RRSP to put towards a mortgage and particularly a down payment on a house. As well, there might be, they could come around with some kind of a tax credit for first-time home buyers that uh, that does something. It might be a tax credit equal to, say, the uh, uh, property taxes that you pay for the first two, three, five years of home ownership. They could come in within some kind of a tax increase. Doesn't change the price of the home, doesn't shake up the market, doesn't cause prices to suddenly go spiraling, but flip side, does make it maybe a little bit easier for a first-time home buyer in the market. Uh, again, expect lots and lots of rhetoric on this and a lot of, you know, we're here to support the middle class and make a difference, but no, you're right, there are not a whole lot of tools left in the toolkit. Yeah, there was a, a previous government, I, I'm I guess about 15, 20 years ago, they did that whole thing about rebates for first-time homebuyers, which was not a bad idea. Or the other one, as you say, to tap into some of your other thing. But that's basically saying you can touch some more of your own money. You can't have ours. Well, exactly, because, again, they don't have a lot of their own money to pass around. Again, I think they're going to be announcing a deficit for the current year, the year that's ending March 31, of maybe around $16 billion. They are not going to tell you that the budget is going to be balanced anytime soon, certainly not in the next five years. But I'm sure they're also going to try to say next year's deficit will be a little less. Um, let's call it $15.5 billion with fingers crossed that it might come in closer to 15 or 14. They are a long ways from balancing. They can't just give out these big ticket items. The other one that uh, has been kicked around since about 1964 here, and, and uh, we're told that there's going to be some mention of this, is the National Pharmacare Program. Mm-hmm. Uh, i got to figure this is just going to be a, 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 a reference point to this, Marvin. I mean, that's, that's a very complex problem and, and, and situation and solution to this. It's going to take a long time to roll something like that out. It's, it's uh, complicated, it takes a long time, and it can also be very expensive. So you might remember what Kathleen Wynne did here in Ontario around Pharmacare, she decided, and I thought this was very interesting, this was her approach, she said, I'm going to make sure that the youngest people out there are getting their drugs appropriately. And so she introduced a plan to give people, I think it was up to age 18, it might have been age 21, access to their medications with no cost. Uh, I suspect what the liberals are going to do is the other way around. Who uses the most drugs are seniors. And that's not, I'm not trying to pick on them. You know, we all age and we need a little more help to maintain ourselves as we get a little bit older. Uh, Also, there are lots of statistics out there to suggest that there are some seniors who have perhaps not adequately prepared for retirement, and therefore they're finding it hard to make ends meet. If you're truly trying to help everybody in the middle class, not just the young, that would be something they could announce. I suspect, again, though, Bill, it will be a multi-year announcement. In other words, you know, we're going to launch a pharmacare program for seniors in 2020. Oh, you'll have to re-elect us if you want to get this, and then it'll be rolled out over X number of years. We'll start with this kind of a drug, and then the next year we'll expand it, we'll expand it, we'll expand it. I, I think you'll hear that kind of an announcement so that if you're looking for a reason to vote for them, and I'm older, it's not just I'm not throwing goodies just at the young. I hear something for you as well. Skills training is another thing that has come up uh, time and time again uh, with the changing economy. We've got people that are 30, 35 years old that all of a sudden they're looking for work. It's pretty difficult for them to go back to, re- to get retrained. 
or 40 or 45. Yeah. So, uh, again, I think what the Liberals are going to try to do is uh, one of these budgets with a little something for everybody. We talked about housing for the 20s and 30s. We've talked about pharmacare for those in their 60s and 70s. What have I got for the people in the 30s, 40s, and 50s? So this will be a new idea as well. I think they're going to propose some kind of a uh, personal savings account. Uh, now, the interesting question is whether you're going to get some matching dollars from the federal government if you make a deposit or whether the money will grow tax-free or you'll even get a, a write-off if you put money into your personal training savings account, and they'll come up with a snazzy name for it. Uh, in the United States, uh, the government there actually allows people to create a health savings account that you can put money in in case one day you have some sort of a disastrous health outcome, you've built up a little bank to cover it. In this case, it is a training uh, bank account that at some point, and if you believe the statisticians, they say that as we introduce artificial intelligence, what have you, the jobs of today won't be the jobs of 30 years from now. So at some point, you're going to need to go and get something, whether it's a degree or a certificate or some kind of retraining. And rather than just you know, shrugging your shoulders and saying, how am I supposed to do this? Uh, the thinking is that they might create this savings account that allows you to build a nest egg. And the other little wrinkle they might do is put in something around um, unemployment insurance that would allow you to take time off work to get this training and yet not be penalized. So there might be some little benefit you can apply there as well. Listen, we know obviously the opposition party's job is to oppose, and, and they're going to start raking the government over the coals about this, and, and probably about the deficit. That, that seems to be pretty fair game these days. But I, I got a question, though. Given the fact that the previous government had nine years of deficits, uh, this government has done the same kind of governing. Uh, most of us are in debt up to our eyeballs right now. D does this even resonate? I know I have. I'm, this is. This, I'm going on dangerous ground here to asking an economist this. But um, I mean, is this really a, such a big deal to the average Canadian now? Does this resonate with them, or they just say debt? Yeah, who's who doesn't have debt? Who doesn't have debt? So, uh, what I think what you're going to hear from the opposition people is not blaming the Liberals for having debt but for shirking their promise. So if I can roll the tape back to 2015, in that campaign, the Liberals said, yeah, we're going to run deficits. You want to believe it. We're going to roll deficits. But, and this is what they said, they're going to be capped at a maximum of $10 billion a year. And five, four years ago, they said by 2019, we'll be balanced. So they're going to bring those pledges out and say, first, you didn't keep it to $10 billion. You were almost $20 billion a year. And at this point, 2019, you have no plan to get us back to balance. That's what they're going to jump on. They're not going to jump on the fact there's been a deficit, because frankly, I can't see any way they would not have run some kind of a deficit as well over these last few years. But they're going to hammer them that you violated your promises. And that's always the concern. You might remember our good friend, the late George H.W. Uh, Bush, who said, read my lips, no new taxes. And then he introduced some new taxes, and people said, you lied. That's what they're going to try to get Justin on, that you lied. Not that you said you weren't going to run deficits. You said you'd do it, and you did. It was the size of the deficits and that you have no plan to get us back to balance. So, again, I think a good question to ask in the future campaign is, well, then what is your plan around deficits, Jagmeet Singh or Andrew Scheer? What, what are you planning to do on those circumstances as well? To your general point, though, um, 
the, I think what the liberals are going to counter with is to say, yes, we've run some debt, but if you look at our debt-to-GDP ratio, in other words, how much debt can this country carry, it's actually fallen. Even though they've run these big deficits, it's fallen. Their target was to keep it up to 30%, and it's below 30%. Um, and they're saying, look, this is just the debt. It's like a corporation. Every corporation has some leverage. You want to use your money wisely. We are not misusing debt. And that will play out, but I think the average person, their head will spin. They'll be much more interested in some little detail. What does this do for me? Okay, you've run a deficit, but what am I getting out of it? Oh, uh, here's the other little thing, Bill. Uh, Both the NDP and the PCs have floated this balloon that uh, if you elect them this fall, they would eliminate the GST, not the whole HST, just the GST on energy, so on your home a natural gas bill on your home electricity bill, and maybe even at the pump, there would still be some federal excise taxes, but you wouldn't pay GST. Uh, that is a, the kind of a thing that I could also see Bill Morneau doing today to give everybody a little something and say, you know, we'll, we'll eliminate that. Again, though, I would put it off to something like January 1st, 2019, so you have to reelect me if you want the goodie. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. I will talk later in the week and uh, talk about why none of this stuff actually happened, okay? That's- <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks so much. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This has been one of the most uh, controversial subjects that uh, Hamilton City Council has had to deal with in quite some time. And uh, it's got all the the elements, I guess, of, of intrigue here. Uh, a report that, uh, for one reason or another, never made it to uh, the council table. Uh, counselors didn't know about this. The public didn't know about this. It has to do with safety on the Red Hill. Now, we know, of course, that the uh, statistics for uh, collisions and for fatalities on the Red Hill are, well, significantly higher than they are even on the, the link uh, just up the hill from there. And uh, there's some people concerned about the design of the road. Uh, this report apparently uh, had some concerns about uh, the quality of the uh, the asphalt that was being used that may have actually contributed. We don't know that yet. So all these questions... And uh, council has decided that they are going to do something about this uh, in the way of an inquiry, but exactly what that inquiry is going to look like, who's actually going to be in charge of it, is probably going to be decided tomorrow at a special meeting of city council. Uh, Stony Creek Council Brad Clark joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, talk about what might happen. Brad, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us again today. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Uh, give us, listen, you obviously have heard and you're getting feedback from your residents. You're, you're right at the top of the hill there in, in the riding that you represent, uh, in the ward rather that you represent. What are you hearing from your residents? Um, they're, they're angry that the report was not made public. Uh, they don't understand why it was not made public. Um, they're obviously asking the same questions that many of us are, and is if that report had been made public, would it made a difference in terms of the number of accidents that have occurred along the road and the injuries, et cetera, uh, and fatalities for that matter. And, and we can only speculate on that, but um, they're wanting um, truly an independent investigation completely arm's length from city council. And, well, I'm not sure where this is going to go, because if I, I talk to five or six out of your colleagues, Brad, I usually get five or six different responses and answers as to how they want to approach this. Now, I understand that part of the meeting tomorrow is going to be behind closed doors, in camera, in other words. Uh, is, is that to discuss the financial ramifications of this, or exactly what is on the agenda? I know you can't get into details about about what's going to be said, but the general idea, why go behind closed doors tomorrow? 
uh, ostensibly because it is legitimately solicitor-client privileged information. So we have outside legal counsel providing advice um, to city council. Uh, that being said, and without getting into the substance of the report, I've read the report now three times, um, and it really does answer all of the questions that were laid out in my motion, um, and it addresses different options of, of different types of investigations, and it, it reads very much like a dissertation or academic report in terms of what you can do, um, and here are the different options, and then it provides some advice. And so from my perspective, and I've encouraged my colleagues, I don't see any reason for that report to, to go in camera. I don't see any reason why we can't have that discussion about that report in public, because it does not prejudice the municipality in any way, shape, or form with any potential litigation down the road. Is there concern here about liability? Uh, there's always a concern from our city solicitor about potential liability um, and risk to the municipality. Um, to be fair to them, I mean, they look at the Municipal Act, they look at the reports that are coming before them, and they say, well, we could exempt this from going public because of this particular reason. And it is a legitimate uh, reason to go in camera, solicitor-client privilege. But the, the council has the right and the discretion to waive that privilege when they, they so feel inclined. And as you know, Bill, we have done that in the past on yep. different issues. Yeah, uh, because you hear, and I certainly have heard, uh, the, the public outcry for this to be, you know, to wash the, your, your laundry here in the public. I mean, uh, because of, of the public nature of this right now, a lot of people are suggesting, and in some cases demanding, that as much of this, if not all of it, I guess, uh, should be held in open session. Yeah, and, and like I said, I... I, I I read through the report the first time to be truly informed about it. By the time I got through it the third time, I was looking at it from the standpoint of what is the reason why this is in camera. And, and the only reason I could come up with was that it was legitimately um, um, you know, solicitor-client privileged information. But we have the authority to waive that. And, and so if there's nothing in that report that is, is uh, risky to the municipality, I think given that there is a compelling public interest on the matter, and I think the public truly would learn a lot from the report, and, and it would be helpful if the discussion and the questions being asked to that solicitor were done in public, I think we should waive that privilege and we should allow that. So I've encouraged councillors to consider that, and we'll see what happens tomorrow. Where do you draw the line here, Brad? There's some people here that just, you know, they, they want to witch hunt, and they just say, who's responsible for this? You know, they're, they're, you know, they're head on a platter. And, uh, but at the same time, I, I don't know that anybody's looking to, to, to blame anybody or to target anybody here. But, I mean, some questions about process have to be answered. I mean, you've been in public life for an awfully long time. Uh, it, I, I, has there been a, an example like this before where you found staff have withheld information that might have been germane to a discussion? Uh... In my entire public life, yes, I've experienced it before, but not on a matter like this where there was uh, public health and safety. Um, th this, this report really raised a concern about um, the friction of the road uh, and the number of accidents that were occurring. And so there should have been a follow-up report and there should have been a discussion. And the council of the day, had they been provided this report, I have no doubt in my mind that they would have acted in some manner to improve um, the quality of the road. Um, and so that's the, the real anger from the community is knowing that that could have happened and didn't happen. Um, and, and then we get into lots of other myriads 
in, in terms of questions. You know, we did learn that the Ministry of Transportation, they, they did studies on the road and didn't inform the council or the city. And so I'd like to know why. I'd like to understand exactly what the ministry was doing. Did the minister know about it? Um, and similar questions that we're asking ourselves, we should be asking of the ministry. And I think realistically, the only way to get to the bottom of it and rebuild the trust is to have those questions and answered asked in a public format, uh, and that's through judicial investigation. Well, I'm sure you've seen, uh, there's a video, I guess, from a couple of years ago, and Council Barula is quizzing some of the people on, on staff and being reassured, as, as you, all of the council was back in those days, Brad, that don't worry, that this just it doesn't just meet, it exceeds standards. There's nothing wrong here. And uh, and if you try to follow timelines here, that's just around the time, if not short, shortly after, that information from this uh, contentious report was issued. And I figured somebody obviously didn't think it was it was relevant. I mean, uh, I, th- I think the word they used was inconclusive. Well, if you got one report that says everything's fine, another one that says we got some concerns, uh, I think council probably should have seen both of those and had, had that debate about what to do going forward. I agree 100 percent with you. That that that's our role, and and you know this is almost an, an existential crisis for the municipality because our role is to to ensure um, a, a, a healthy community, a safe community, all of the the different departments that that we administer as a, as a, and govern as as city councilors. All of them have some in impact on health and safety. That's our role in the community. And so to have this happen in such a demonstrative way where a report was withheld for unknown reasons, again, a part of the investigation, um, and, and, and in the end uh, there were many accidents and there were lives lost, uh, it really cuts to the heart of our role as a government. And, and, and I've heard from many people that, that it's, it's just broken their trust with municipal government. And so we have to regain that trust. And that means going beyond just the minimal. This means going beyond what we can, can in essence, we don't really have to spend extra money. We have to, to go to the extreme to ensure that when questions are being asked of witnesses, people are hearing the answers and hearing the questions. Um, and there's no filter. There's, there's no, if you will, sanitation of the final report. Uh, and I think that's what the public is asking for. Yeah, you know, the comparative I thought of is this was unfolding so weeks ago, and, and you could relate to this because you were the transportation minister for the province at the time, was on the other side of town on the 403 when there were a number of collisions, and there was a great concern at that time about public safety. Uh, and you addressed it. I mean, you didn't just say, well, you know, it's inconclusive. I mean, you reduced the speed limit. You couldn't really do a whole lot with the design of the road, but you acted on the, on the concerns and the information within the parameters that you could act in. Uh, which begs the question, why didn't staff allow this to go forward? Because maybe you could have done the same thing over here. And, and that's a perfect analogy, because in, in that example, there was a report that was provided to me as the minister uh, from ministry staff showing the number of collisions. Um, and it was right by the, 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 the lanes going to the 407 or going to the QEW. And, and, and there was just mass confusion, and, and cars were getting in accidents. And so we had to look at the overall design of the road and where we were directing the cars, and we found a very simple fix, and it was just the question of, of moving uh, an egress off to the right so that we could direct cars over to the Negra abound much quicker. And, and, and the number of accidents after we made that change dropped precipitously. So it resolved it. So your point is bang on. 
if governors, um, whether it's provincial or municipal, if we get the information, we can act and we can make things better. If we don't get the information and if we bury that information, um, then we're at, at the risk of, of, of having more people hurt unnecessarily. Let me ask you about process, if I could, here, because uh, that's obviously one of the things you're going to be dealing with tomorrow. Uh, who's going to do the, uh, this this review, uh, whether it's going to be a, a judicial review, as some people are, are demanding? Uh, not all of your colleagues seem to be agreeing with that. Uh, the other concern that I've heard, Brad, I'd like you to address, is uh, how, how, how hands-on should council be about this? I mean, should council be allowed to set the parameters for this? Uh, and who does the report come back to? Does it come back to council? Does it go back to staff? What's, what's going to happen here? Uh, oh, uh, well, it really depends on, on the option that, that council ultimately decides. Because uh, each one of the options, whether it's um, a, a judicial investigation, whether or not it's an ombudsman or an auditor general or some other form of out, outside external ind- investigation, would have different uh, parameters and, 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 and different outcomes. And so ultimately, from my perspective, when you look at it, um, if you go with a judicial investigation where a retired judge does the investigation, uh, we provide to that retired judge the concerns that we have, in essence, many of the questions that I've released since Friday uh, that need answers, and they do the investigation. Now, as they're going through the investigation, if something comes up and they, go, they have the right to go down another path so they can broaden the investigation as things unroll, uh, unfold, um, and there's no, no direct interference from the city council at all. Yeah, so in other words, you want to give them free reign. In other words, this is what yeah. we want to find out. You know, go turn over whatever rocks you need to do to find out exactly what's going on and why. And, and you do it in a, in a manner that you're going through um, the court system as opposed to hiring an accounting firm or hiring an ombudsman or hiring an auditor general and directing them to investigate. The immediate challenge that you have there is, A, um, you've retained them. They now in, have a contract with the city for that matter. Um, but in all of the other instances, the, the outcomes of those investigations, so as they're asking questions, for my uh, research, the questions are asked uh, in a private setting, like the Auditor General. The Auditor General in the province in- interviews employees all the time. All of those interviews are conducted in private, and they're confidential, and they, they remain confidential. They're not even FOIable. Um, and then they write a report. Now, they may take sip- snippets of the comments out and quote people, but at the end of the day, it still remains to, uh, as a confidential interview. I don't think the public wants that. I think the public wants to actually see the questions being asked and hear the answer and make up their own mind as opposed to having it fed to, to them through an outside source. Yeah, I mean, it's it's akin to the, to the Mueller report down in the States, you know, where the, it doesn't actually go to the public. It goes to, to the uh, Attorney General, and they can decide exactly what they're going to release. Uh, and, and there was some concern initially, I think, up here. Now, now, there's no national security issues about the Red Hill, but there are safety issues about the Red Hill that do impact each and every one of us, I guess, anybody who's even thinking about driving on that road. So I, it, it would make all kinds of sense to simply have that entire report released to the public and let us uh, uh, ascertain exactly you know what's going on and why and make our own judgments. And I don't want to mislead anyone. All of the reports would be released to the public. All of the reports would would um, uh, naturally prompt some discussion by council. Um, how the reports are developed is, is uniquely different, and, and that, that's my point. And I really believe that, that we have to go beyond 
um, the bare minimums to to ensure that the public trust is there. And and I think that that there's only one option available for us to do that, and it will cost us. Um, but I think it's well worth it. Well, let me ask you about that, because some of your council colleagues uh, seem to be a little skittish about the cost and saying, well, the judicial review might be the most expensive, and I'm not sure we want to spend that. Is, is money a factor for you? For me, I don't think it is. Uh, uh, the, the, the prime factor to, for me is getting to the bottom of it and rebuilding the trust with the community. And, and I think that's uh, what we need to go in under that understanding. Uh, judicial investigation, I would, I would dare say that a minimum cost, and I've said this from the very beginning, uh, would be at least a million dollars and maybe more. Um, but we, we have the money available to us from the surplus uh, at the end of the year uh, when we do our, our final financing. Uh, we have uh, funds available in, in stabilization uh, reserves. It, it's not a question of upping the taxes to do it. Uh, so I, I, I don't think the money should be an issue. And, and I think it's unfair for people to compare um, the SARS public inquiry or the Walkerton public inquiry to, to a judicial investigation on such a small uh, matter as what we're looking at here. Um, yeah, they spent many, many millions of dollars on the Walkerton inquiry, but it was a much broader uh, issue of public interest across the entire province. Yeah, and there were there were procedural issues, et cetera, about government decisions and everything else. Absolutely. This, this is this is much more microscopic. I understand that, but I, I I was concerned by some of the comments from some of your colleagues that that, that price was a factor. And uh, but this is public safety, and and I'm not suggesting the council should spend whatever they want, whenever they want, on on whatever projects they want. But this is this one's got a, I think a special significance to it, simply because of the uh, the outcry that we've heard over the last number of months. Yeah, and and the projected prices and the um, um, caveats from some folks that this could really cost the municipality a great deal of money. Uh, that doesn't um, detract me from the primary goal, which is to rebuild the trust in the community and to have an open, transparent, and accountable process where people can truly understand what's going on. If we provide advice to someone to go out and interview expert witness and witnesses and employees and they conduct that in interview in private and then they come up with a report and they release the report i don't think that we're going to rebuild the trust i think there will still be people who are questioning the outcome and questioning what was said how were the the questions asked and and i i think in this case um although it's an unusual situation for a municipality to request a judicial investigation i think we have um a compelling public interest to do so. Uh, are we sure that this is going to be resolved tomorrow? At least the direction is going to be resolved, and 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 maybe even some of the finer details about exactly who's going to do this, or, or or which doors they're going to knock on to do this. I don't think you can actually appoint if it's going to be a judicial review. I, I don't anticipate you're going to appoint anybody tomorrow, but you'd at least give direction to council and to staff rather as to as to exactly how you want to see this proceed. Uh, the reason I'm asking, without trying to be flippant here, is council does have a propensity sometimes for kicking things down the road. I, I don't think you can do that with this issue. I can tell you that the sun will come up tomorrow. I can't tell you whether or not we will have a decision. <laughs> that may be the best I'm going to get out of you, given some of the track records of some of your colleagues. I, I have to be completely frank, because I honestly don't know where the council will end up. Each councillor has to wrestle with their own uh, conscience. They have to wrestle with the information and come to a, a decision in terms of what is best for the city. 
And I respect all of them in the work that they do, and I respect all of them in the decision that they will make. At the end of the day, it's their right to make that decision. Um, I will argue um, my position and, and vote accordingly, and, and whatever happens, happens. Brad, thanks so much for the time today. I always appreciate it. We'll uh, lo- watch with great interest tomorrow and see what happens at City Hall. Appreciate Thank the time today. Thank you, sir. Brad Clark, uh, Stony Creek Councillor, of course. Big day at Hamilton City Hall tomorrow as they uh, discuss discuss rather and, and go back and forth on, on uh, what has become a very, very contentious issue. And hopefully we can get some clarity on that tomorrow. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday on the program, we uh, talked to you about the uh, some of the implications anyway on the Ontario government's new education policies. And, and boy, there's a long list of them. And I put that on my blog today at 900CHML.com. I, I mean, it really started... Uh, when they, they canceled the cap-and-trade program, because what that did is, a, I was going to say, an unintended consequence. Maybe it was intended. I don't know. But it meant millions of dollars it was supposed to go to boards of education to fix some of the dilapidated schools was not going to happen anymore. So that was that was a, a problem. That was strike one. Then, of course, they came up with a new tuition program uh, for post-secondary, and that was problematic because that means less money for universities and, and colleges which means they may have to cut back on programs and, and su- student services. So students are upset about that. The universities are upset about that. Well, now they're starting to go into class sizes, and that was the announcement that came by la- late last week from uh, the education minister, where they want to increase class sizes, and there are some consequences to that. Now, yesterday on the program, we talked with uh, Harvey Bischoff, who is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. He's the provincial president. And uh, I think he painted a pretty stark picture to what's going to happen here on a provincial basis, and we talked about some of the Toronto numbers. But we wanted to bring it home to you here and talk about the implications here with the Hamilton Board, what's going to happen here to our kids and uh, that are going to the schools here in this area and the impact it's going to have. And uh, to that end, we're pleased to welcome Dan Staples, who is the uh, local president of the OSSTF, uh, to give us his take on what's been going on. Dan, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Yeah, thank you. Let's uh, let's get into this right now. I know you guys have done some number crunching. We talked about uh, the Toronto School Board's projections that they feel upwards of a thousand teaching jobs are going to be lost. Uh, this is a smaller board, obviously, but the uh, on a ratio basis and on a per capita basis, uh, the uh, the impact is just as significant here, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's quite high. Um, I know that the board has said that they're going to be, you know, we're losing about 178 jobs. Um, I was speaking with reporters yesterday. And uh, it's, by our quick math, um, it's a heck of a lot higher than that. Such as? So I'm not going to be throwing out, um, throwing out numbers, um, but I'm, I am telling you 178 is a very conservative number. I know um, they were looking at just the movement of the 22 to the 28 kids in that class. I'm not so sure the, the board took into account um, the impact of the e-learning piece. So it is a lot higher than 178. Well, that happened with the Toronto board too, though, Dan. I mean, w- when I saw the story yesterday morning, uh, there was an early edition of the Toronto Star that talked about possibly 800 uh, teaching positions lost in the Toronto board. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time I, 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 a couple hours later, I had Mr. Bischoff on, uh, they said they've done some further crunching, and it was upwards of 1,000. So, I mean, as more information becomes available, and as you guys get to analyze this a little bit more, uh, the, the picture becomes even more stark, doesn't it? Well, it's it's very difficult um, when you start looking at the numbers, and people like to say, "Oh, it's only going to be um, this amount of jobs that are going to be lost." You got the minister that was or is, is saying um, that there's no jobs going to be lost because of attrition. I just want to hit something home here. 
we can talk about jobs, but let's just talk about positions. Because whether it's a, um, whether the jobs are protected through attrition, that that's let's put that aside. The minister is saying that they want to move from 22 kids in a class to 28 kids in a class on average. In Hamilton right now, we have got classes that are maxed out at 32. These are your um, grade 11, grade 12 kids that are you know trying to get to college and university. And you've already got 32 kids in the class. So if you have that average now set higher, you're going to have upwards to 40 kids into a class. And I'm not so sure uh, what kind of learning environment they're going to be in. So I really don't want to talk about the job loss. I want to talk about the impact as what it's going to be looking like for the average kid in an average classroom in Hamilton. It's very, very scary. Um, I'd be very, very concerned um, having a kid in in any classroom in Ontario right now, whether it's the public board, whether it's the Catholic board, um, the increase in class size is is going to be uh, very problematic. Um, and you need to start questioning, is this going to be an educational environment or is it going to be crowd control? Because I'm not so sure the education um, can be delivered properly and effectively with the high amount of um, increase of these kids in a class. There was an interesting analogy that was presented uh, as I was reading through some material last night. Just bear with me for a second. And they mm-hmm. said, for, for, even for people that maybe don't even have uh, children in, in this the school system right now, he says, it's like when you go to the grocery store and you, you've got your cart full of groceries and you get up there and there's 12 cash registers and only two of them are open. And you get frustrated. You don't care whether that person got laid off or was sick or anything. There's just nobody there. So there's mm-hmm. less help. In other words, you feel frustrated. And and he said, this is how students are going to feel. They're not going to be able to get extra help uh, from the teachers because the teachers are going to be overburdened. Uh, we also, you haven't even touched on the idea about what's happening, of course, with educational assistance and the funding for that. But yeah. that's going to have an impact on this too. Uh, it's it's the fact that there aren't going to be as many teachers. And and as, as a parent and even as a taxpayer, Dan, my concern about that is if we want to make our children ready to be competitive and, and to succeed in, in a global economy, uh, it's not just the kid down the street that they're going to be competing against. It's the kids from, from the U.K., from Scandinavia, from all over the world. And, and it seems as if we're using 19th century techniques now to solve 21st century problems. Um, yeah, you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> um, <laughs> I got that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's ab- it's, again, it's absolutely problematic. I mean... The more kids that you have in a class, um, you're going to start looking at, um, if, if you've got smaller class numbers, you're going to have better communication between the teachers and the student. Um, that's inevitable. Uh, the higher the higher the class um, caps, or sorry, the, the class average, the less communication you're going to have, the less individualized um, programming that you're going to have for each and every kid in Ontario. What's the impact this is going to have on, on, on staffing? And I know that uh, there's going to be pushback, and I'm sure you probably already heard some or seen some on social media. Mm-hmm. Ah, these, these teachers, they only work about half of the year anyway, and now they want to sit around the – what's the big deal? Uh, which is, by the way, total BS, but uh, that, that's another issue we can get to another time. But with fewer teachers on staff and fewer teachers there to teach kids and to take on some of these subjects – uh, talk to us about the impact this is going to have on on a children on a child's education. I mean, if the you don't have uh, and, and you're you know the the two people in the school that may teach French may actually retire. 
uh, there's no guarantee that there's going to be anybody else that can take up the slack. You may have to drop the French course in that particular school. How problematic is that going to be? Yeah, so I mean, the board can easily talk to you a little bit better as far as um, how they're going to be running the school. What I know is that our members, whatever class that they are given, they are qualified in the subject area, and they will be doing the job that they always do. My members are professional, and they will continue to be professional in the classroom, and they will be delivering the curriculum. But what needs to be pushed home to everybody that's listening right now is your kid or your grandkid or your neighbor's kids that are going to school right now are going to be getting less attention and less, well, I don't want to say less instruction, but it's, it's definitely going to be um, a much more difficult environment for kids to learn. And if it's going to be a much harder, diff- much more difficult, um, you know, to learn in the classroom, then again, they're going to feel these effects throughout their life, whether it is for job interviews, whether it is um, getting the, the job that they had aspired to get. Um, it, this is going to follow them. Um, we need to stop this now. Um, we need to have the Minister of Education rethink this process or even put some thought into this process. I know they were talking about, you know, consulting with 70,000 people. Um, I'd like to know what the stats are on how many people actually said, yeah, let's have a higher class size. I've never heard that as, as, a, as, a, as a possible solution to some of the challenges facing the education system. In other words, we, we're going to do it with fewer teachers and larger classroom sizes. I mean, where, show me the logic where that's going to make for a more efficient school system and education program. Well, it, 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 it's nonsensical. And, but that's what they're proposing. The, and, of course, the other frustration, you just talked about consultation. Uh, who did they consult with? Well, if you listen to the Minister of Education, they seem to have consulted with everybody. Um, again, they're not showing what the stats are of, of who asked who asked what or what was asked and, and what, how was it responded. But they've created this plan as to how they're going to better educate Ontario. I am telling you, this is a non-starter. We are going back in time. Dan, did you get the sense that the, the fix was in? Because I heard that same thing when they developed their, their, their rolled out their autism programming uh, a few weeks ago now, and they said, well, we've consulted. And, and the people from the autism associations I talked to said, we presented them with stuff and said, don't do this, do this. And they just totally reversed it. And said, So consulting is one thing. Listening is something altogether different. Yeah, and, you know, I'm not going to point fingers and say that people have lied or um, but you alluded it um, a couple of minutes ago, saying that there are some people out there that are definitely saying, you know what, suck it up, teachers. You know, you, you know, you get this much off, or, or whatever the case may be. At the end of the day, I am going to be saying this: anybody in their right mind who wants to have better education for the kids of Ontario would not be increasing the class sizes, let alone increasing the class size by an average of six. Do you get the feeling, and, and and for those who have been in in the positions for quite some time, I mean, I, I alluded to this yesterday. This kind of reminds me of the mid nineteen nineties when uh, the government of the day started to to tear apart the education system, and it didn't go well. Uh, and I'm afraid we're heading down that confrontational road once again. But I, I'm 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 getting the feeling as I look at these statistics and as I listen to what the minister is trying to do here, Dan, that that what they're trying to do here is craft the cheapest education system, not the most efficient education system. And in my mind, that's not fair to the students. Well, <laughs> it's uh, it's 
I chuckle, but it's almost, uh, yeah, it, it makes you angry. It makes you angry what they're doing to our kids of Ontario. Um, but I guess you need to remember, you only get for what, what you pay for. I mean, if you want to get something very, very cheap, you know what is, the end result is going to be in a couple of years. Um, do you want the best education system? You're going to have to pay for it. Um, I think our future deserves it. I think our future needs to continue with one of the, you know, the best education systems in the province. Um, and, and so I'm sure there's lots of places where you might want to cut, but I'm telling you, class size is not one of them. Well, uh, it's, it's game on right now uh, because I know students are pushing back on this. Uh, teachers associations and boards of education are pushing back on this. Uh, I'm sure uh, when parents understand the gravity of the situation that, uh, that they'll have a voice in this as well. And it's, uh, it's going to be interesting rather to see just how the province yeah. is going to respond to this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of interesting. You've got the board of education that's saying that this is not a good idea. You've got the federations that are saying this is not a good idea. You've got the students saying this is not a good idea. I'd really like to know who thinks this is a good idea. Um, I, you know, you, I would encourage everybody who has any, any kind of interest as far as their kids or their grandkids or any child in particular in Ontario to contact their MPPs and say, you know, what, what's going on here? Dan Staples, uh, local president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Dan, we'll stay in touch as this uh, rolls out and evolves over the next little while. Thanks for this yeah. today. I, I appreciate the time, and uh, unfortunately, I think we're going to be talking quite a bit. So. Well, that's okay. <laughs> There'll be a platform here. Thanks again, Dan. Okay, thank you so much. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.